You're my only daughter. If I say that you should be married, then married, you should be. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medieval historian, Abby Agresta, to discuss 2022 film Catherine Called Birdie. So Abby, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Why don't you start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular piece of media? I am a professor of medieval history at George Washington University. My specific research is on medieval Mediterranean Spain, the crown of Aragon, and more specifically, public health and environmental history in um, the cities of that region which means that I am not actually specifically qualified to talk about 13th century English women or village life at all. But I would argue that I am significantly more qualified than Lena Dunham. (laughs) (laughs) about those things. (laughs) So, and and most importantly, Catherine called Birdie the book, was what made me want to be a medievalist first when I was nine. Um, so I feel very strongly about it. Again, as apparently Lena Dunham did, but you know. <laughs> In different ways. Yeah. And we have talked about Catherine Called Birdie, the book, I feel like many times because yeah. for listeners who have not heard Abby's previous episode, Abby and I went to undergrad together and met very early on as two students who had decided that we wanted to be medieval historians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there's a certain amount of like formative pieces of media that make one want to become a medieval historian before the age of 18. Yeah. And I think Catherine Caldberti is up there. Um, yeah. I mean, and as we'll talk about, I think, because it is actually one of the better pieces of media about the Middle Ages. Yes. The is. Yes. The book. Uh, and <laughs> let us be careful to specify. Shadowing. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, what we'll be focusing on mostly today is the film which came out just in 2022, which I think by the time this episode comes out, it will be newly 2023. And this is written and directed by Lena Dunham, based on the 1994 novel by Karen Cushman, starring Bella Ramsey as Catherine slash Birdie, uh, who I know, of course, mostly as Liana Mormont from Game of Thrones, which, you know, she was very fun in. I couldn't remember where I'd seen her. That's yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I was mostly distracted by the hot pe- priest from Fleabag as, uh, <laughs> as Birdie's dad. Which her inexplicably shirtless dad. Just like spending like, a movie in a bathrobe. <laughs> like we can talk about this of, like weird drapey item. But like, I feel like someone told the costume designer that they wore robes in the middle ages and like they didn't. <laughs> They just thought it was bathrobes. Like I just like yeah, wearing a bathrobe and especially yeah, her dad all the time. Her, her dad goes hard on that, but yeah, so yeah, he is the hot priest from Fleabag, uh, and isn't Sherlock? Oh yeah, yeah, he's Moriarty from Sherlock. Sure. Yeah, no, he's very attractive, uh, and her mother is Billy Piper, who is uh, she's fun. I I liked her in Penny Dreadful. Yeah, and she was um, the first companion in the reboot of Doctor Who too. Right, right. Yeah. So. I, I will come across her soon. I am going on a Doctor Who-related journey. 
Yeah, I will say like as something I'm totally unqualified to comment on this in a professional capacity, but I think the casting of this movie was actually pretty okay. Yeah, there was nobody I didn't like casting wise. Yeah. But yeah, no, so some some good people and like and like actually a lot of Game of Thrones alums, which I found sort of funny that um Murgos slash Shaggy Beard is Paul Kay, who is Thoros of Mirror. Oh yeah. That guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, all these people who I knew I'd seen before and I couldn't I couldn't remember. Yeah. And yeah, he was definitely somebody that I was just like, I was looking at him the whole time and I was like, who are you and why do I know you? And then I'm like, that's why I know you. Yeah, and like that also, not a bad casting. Like I think the only thing I guess is that Morwenna having a Scottish accent is, mm. like, I mean, that's anachronistic. Like it did, it, you wouldn't actually uh-huh. have that, but yeah. I, I don't actually hate it because it would like Scottish yeah. accents are funny. And I think it yeah, worked. it's fine. It's like, fine. I don't, yeah, I don't hate it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, overall, overall, I think good casting. I thought Sophie Okonedo as Ethel Freda is, was like super fun. Yeah. In general, I think having a multiracial cast, I also like appreciated. Yes. It's like, that is more diverse, I think, than an English village in 1290 would actually have been. Yes. But like in a way that was fine. Like, like an actual English village was probably more diverse than people would have imagined it was. Right. And so like, it was fine. It like gave a vibe. And like that, that was actually completely fine with me. The thing that, well, we can get into this, but like, the thing that I thought was really annoying was that they made everyone beautiful and have great teeth. Like yes. They sort of shied away yeah. from like casting. For example, Perkin has a disability. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of gross, actually. I thought that they cut that out. Yeah. And like made him gay instead, which. Yeah, that's the same, the same, right? <laughs> and it's like, um, was like not bad. Like maybe Perkin, I, like I don't. As an interpretation of the character, Perkin. I mean, I'm fine with him also fine. being gay. Yeah, like, I, like I don't think that was illegitimate as like a reading of the character. Yeah, but it was very weird to me that they were like kind of proactive in having a cast that that was like multiracial, which is cool and interesting. But then, like, we're really, really sh- like we're, we're like not willing at all to have a cast that was like yeah spectrum of abilities as the as mm-hmm. the as the characters did in the book yeah no because that's a really good point because i think also ever mentioned the fact that uh catherine has eyesight has eye issue i mean that she does not have perfect eyesight no and they don't really because that comes up regularly in the book and they don't really depict ethel fritha this is what made me think of it as mm-hmm. having like actual like in the book she is depicted as having like real breaks with reality well, I think they also life. aged her down by a solid 20 yeah, she's like years. Also way, way younger. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I think like one of the things that was interesting about it being a movie is you see not just Catherine's perspective and like Catherine mm-hmm. and her parents are like super old and gross and they're clearly in their 30s. Yeah. And so like there is a way in which I think the book inevitably gives like a different perspective and, mm-hmm. you know, Ethel Fritha maybe wasn't as ancient as she seems. That's true. She was she was clearly older than George. That's true. Is like I don't know. Like that was like sort of fine, I thought. But yeah, like it they really toned down the extent to which she could be. I mean, because one of the things I thought was interesting in the book is that like she is clearly someone who is like for whom mental illness is like an impediment in her life in certain ways. Yeah. She is still like legitimately a person that like Catherine can talk to 
mm-hmm. and like can be a source of real advice. Mm-hmm. And, and now like she's that, just a and, little like, quirky. Holding that tension as like somebody yeah. who's like both insane in certain ways and also mm-hmm. treated as a real person. But like they 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 sort of like they like shaved the edges off of that where she's just kind of quirky. Yeah. yeah, now I feel like she's this weird like manic pixie dream widow. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, and then like they they kind of like shy away from I feel like from well, no, they don't really. Like, I mean, George is kind of depicted as unhappy, but it's also sort of like, why? You see, like, your wife seems awesome. <laughs> yeah, you don't really get why he's so unhappy. I'm like, she seems great. She's actually, like, really hot. Like, yeah, what's your problem? And, like, very, like, canny. And, like, they have a really nice house with all these, like, yeah. you know, nice pieces of furniture in it. Yeah, and it's weird because he he seems really grouchy, but they also like she I mean she seems like somebody that you could talk to. Like she seems she seems like a perfectly good person to marry. Yeah, they wear like matching robes, more robes. <laughs> there are so many robes in this movie. I mean like, like there's there is some store out there that makes like vaguely like orientalist vibe robes that made a killing off of this movie honestly this whole movie i feel like the aesthetic was like anthropology yes like it was just all kind of weird like like it was i appreciated that they used bright colors because yes i like that that they do shy away from often in medieval stuff but it was all like like cute cotton prints which is like that they, like they don't ha- the cotton printing was not a thing like they, right. they didn't have like you know cool patterns like, right i don't know <laughs> yeah catherine in particular yeah she wore a lot of these like cotton prints that yeah feel feel very anthropology and then i feel like there was also like her her dad had kind of a free people vibe it's very much and like they and like they had like these sort of like iron bedsteads with like cute mismatched like bedsteads, mm-hmm. which was like this so is charming. Not, this is not it. It's so cute, but it's not right. It. Like the the household decor comes from Urban Outfitters. Yeah. No. Exactly. And like again, I'm like, as an artistic choice, I can I, I don't hate the idea that they were like presenting the Middle Ages as like not just gross. Yeah. But. Like, but no, this is not, this is not remotely. And, and I will say I, in general, I tend to not mind things that are very clearly deliberate anachronisms mm-hmm. that yeah. I think making the choice to have an aesthetic that is not purely a medieval aesthetic. It is in some ways at times silly, but it's not something I think is inherently a problem especially when it does then lend itself to the possibility of okay we can have color that's nice that's at least better than why is this movie so very gray which is a constant problem i run into yeah i mean it's kind of like the i think feel like they were it's like the night a knight's tale right the like yeah exactly kind of thing where they're like sort of being deliberately anachronistic for humor and it was like they almost were doing that with the aesthetic of this movie but like not I couldn't quite tell the extent to which it was really on purpose. Yes. And I think, I think to be honest, I also would have liked that better if I'd liked the movie better. Yeah. Like if it were legitimately funny, for example. Yes. I think if the, I think if the movie were, if the movie were as charming and funny as the movie thinks it is, I think I would have found the aesthetic charming. Yes. Yeah. I would agree with that. <laughs> 
And I will just say full disclosure, that's actually how I feel about like most of Lena Dunham's body of work is that it is significantly less funny and charming than Lena Dunham thinks it is. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I don't have a lot of opinions on Lena. I mean, like I watched part of Girls. I don't know. It was fine. Yeah. I watched, I watched Girls for, I don't know, maybe a season or two and then decided I hated it and stopped watching it. And she did that other movie that I want to say there was like a mother daughter relationship situation that Mm -hmm. I think I watched, but I don't really remember that much about it. And I read a lot of commentary about her memoir, which was weird. Hmm. Yeah, I think like, honestly, I find it pretty fascinating that. That she I mean, from interviews with her about this movie, she read this book as a kid and loved it and has like always dreamed of making a movie about it. And I think it's like really fascinating. Yeah. That someone could have read that book and loved it as we read it and loved it. Mm -hmm. But apparently that love had nothing to do with it being medieval. Like the medieval seems to have been not what interested her like at all. No, not at all. Highlighted the feistiness of the main character. Right. That the restrictive medieval atmosphere, as it were, is, Yeah. uh, yeah, the foil for you know, the character being this kind of feisty, quirky person that clearly she identified with in very particular ways. But, but yeah, I mean, because, you know, she's, she's almost exactly our age. Yeah. As we are almost exactly Lord Rollo's age. (laughs) (laughs) I realized. (laughs) Actually, like in the book, the oldest kid, the oldest brother, Robert is 20 and mm-hmm. the, mom, the dad got married when they were 15. So like they are yeah. approximately 35 years old. <laughs> there, there was some, I had I had a little moment when I realized that. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like there are a lot of things like that where you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the fun, the fun kid in this movie anymore. I'm the parent in this movie. Yeah. And I think that that like, I, like in the same way as I appreciated the casting, like I did appreciate that they actually looked the ages that they would have been. Yeah. And I think I can't tell quite like, like, honestly, I think they made Catherine's character really annoying. But to some extent, I think that that's because she is actually a 14 year old and you aren't seeing mm-hmm. her from inside her own head the way you are in the books or in the book. Yeah. And so, like, objectively, she probably was annoying. Yeah. And you can absolutely, I think, re, uh, so, you know, rereading the book after having watched the film, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I can, I can see how this would be a person that if this was a 14 year old that I was interacting with and had like responsibility for, I would find it extremely annoying. And like, I think that like, you know, she describes her parents in like very one dimensional ways. Yeah. Especially her yeah. dad. And like, I, and like the movie, tries perhaps way too hard to give them a little bit more depth and like mm-hmm. on some level I appreciated that like you know that it was it was being told from a, from not just her like yeah one single perspective that like there was a little bit more that you could see about like the impact of her actions yeah Pretty. I may have exhausted all the good things I have to say about this movie already <laughs> right 
Right. So let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> what happens in this movie. So the uh, we have the enumeratio or recap section. And so just I'll say as a kind of quick baseline before we get into discussion for anyone not familiar with the book or the film, uh, the, the book, and I would say basically also the film is sort of framed as Catherine keeping a diary, essentially, where she is talking about the events of her life and her quotidian experiences and essentially ends up going into basically her kind of main conflict, which is that her father would like her to get married and she would like to not get married. Yeah. We have a lot of emphasis about on her parents, like gentry poverty. Yeah. Okay. Like, so I feel like one of the biggest changes from the book is that it is implied in the movie specifically that she is only being married off because her father is in some kind of financial crisis brought on by his extravagant spending. And yes, the whole arc of the movie seems to be him like trying to marry her off to like solve his problems and then having like a redemptive like sense of regret about that at the end. Yes. <laughs> that is bananas. It fundamentally doesn't make sense. I am going to go more in depth later. Like I have, I have a segment that is planned for this of talking sure, about sure. medieval marriage practices. But just to say for now, typically marrying a daughter off is uh, what might be called an expense rather than a source of funding. Yeah. I mean, not only that, but like marrying your daughter off is how you behave as a parent well yes yes it's it is a perfectly a normal thing to do it's like, like it's presented in the movie as like he has like mis misbehaved and now he's like trying and now like he's this flawed parent who's like trying to like solve his problems by marrying her off and like he wouldn't be doing that apparently if she weren't if he if he hadn't like you know we can get into the tiger but if, if he hadn't like, yes bought, bought something a bunch of this stuff tiger who died Whereas, as I recall, like in the book, he's marrying her off because he's a dad and she's a daughter and she's like yeah. 14 and that's what you do. And he wants to get a good deal out of it because he's a person managing an estate and doesn't really care yeah. about her feelings because that's not actually in the brief. <laughs> and like, right. And 14 is, for her class status, a not unreasonable age for them to be looking to get her married. And yeah. it, you know, mentions right that her parents were really probably got married right at 15. So yeah. I would I mean the other thing that is constantly played for laughs over the course of the movie, and we can also talk about this later, is the idea that she that she is like a little kid in the sense that she is like thought to sort of not understand the basics of like sex yes. situation. Over and so over the course of the movie, she is like presented, I think, very much and very much more than in the book as kind of a child who is resisting this stuff rather than like yeah. what time would have been like basically a young adult person. Right. And a lot of it is very cringe. I mean, there is this bit at some point where she gets somebody to explain sex to her, like relatively far into this movie, right? And uh it's this sword and box metaphor, which is one of the least pleasant things I've ever heard. It does then go into the, I think, genuinely somewhat amusing line that she says, I thought a, I thought a virgin was when God makes you pregnant with the response. That was only the one virgin. But I feel like that would have been funnier if she was six. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's that isn't a, a distinct difference from the book where it's emphasized all throughout that she knows exactly where babies come from. Yeah. And like that is not a mystery because in fact it wouldn't have been. Well, because people don't have that much privacy and she has seen and heard people having sex, which is would have very much been the case in like, animals. Yeah. Like, and it's and not a shock to her. Very serious. Like people aren't very prudish about it, in fact. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't know. People think that the whole past was the Victorian era. Uh, well, right. And well, the Victorians did ruin everything. And I feel like the Victorians had their image of the Middle Ages that what that like their image of the Middle Ages was very prudish. And then so everybody then has taken that image, right? Is that as what the Middle Ages was actually like? Whereas, in fact, if they look at the real Middle Ages, there's like a lot more penises. Yeah. So many penises everywhere. There are medieval texts that I can't teach because I feel weird about it. Um, I mean, I, I have leaned into that in that I, my last day of a class this semester, I was talking for various reasons about the kind of question of Jesus's humanity versus divinity and showed something with the uh, disembodied side wound of Christ, which uh, if anyone would like to look up the disembodied side wound of Christ, it looks uh, rather vaginal. And uh, the students just all like started just without be- any prompting from me, they just looked at it and started muttering amongst themselves. And I was just like, yes, no, we all know what it looks like. Yeah. No, I was thinking about that. the reader that I use for my intro course has, um, has a set of, has like some fablio that mm-hmm. are extremely dirty. And mm-hmm. I, including the ring that controlled erections. Uh-huh. Just, um, every every year I'm like, should I assign this? I bet it would, <laughs> you know, be like I don't actually want to do that. Because <laughs> I'm anyway. Um, but the medieval people clearly had no such scruples. Yeah. They yeah, exactly. They were they were fine with creation of penises. And Catherine would have been used to said yeah. penises. Yeah. Penises. Uh, Yes. But yeah, so she is, she is very young. She is very naive. She is also, you know, the emphasis is very much right. And this, and this part is, I would say something that's coming from the book that she's also kind of very resistant to certain things that are associated to kind of trappings of being a, a lady of being a woman of her particular class status. Mm -hmm. And I think is like somewhat naive about the amount of freedom she would expect if she had a slightly different class status, which is also coming. Yes. Like she is constantly assuming that if she were either a villager or like a richer, more high status person, she would have more freedom and like constantly Mm -hmm. being told by various people in the movie and also in the book that like, that's just not true. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, that I actually kind of appreciate. And, and that almost seems to me potentially realistic that somebody who is from her class background might have that attitude even if it's wrong yeah and i think you know she's there you know there are certain ways i think in which she is made to be excessively naive but i think also you know she's a 14 year old who hasn't really been anywhere yeah so you know the idea that she has a sort of slightly unrealistic way about how her society works is i think completely reasonable yeah yeah we get to see a lot of her her chasing off potential suitors Mm through various comedic means, including uh, setting the privy on fire, which is probably a bad call. Yeah, in the book that was supposed to be- that does, yeah. Yeah, but it does does happen in the book. And I don't know, like that part, that part I also didn't hate. Like I think, you know, that would actually probably have been 
one of the only ways in which someone in her position and with her feelings could exercise any kind of active role in this process is to sort of control how desirable or undesirable she seemed. That was actually, I think, yeah, probably my my favorite part was her driving off the suitors because it was also like it was often genuinely funny. There was kind of good mocking of the suitors. I think the the movie made it a little more montagey than I would have liked. Yes. Kind of like she did the same thing every time or something. And in the book, Mm -hmm. it was sort of at more intervals, you know, probably just different types of media do it different ways. But yeah. um, But yeah. She does a bunch. She has a bunch of different strategies, none of which I think are are like beyond the realm of possibility. Right? Yeah, like her kind of like throwing bird, like you know, like putting all of her birds on this guy's head. Like that was kind of funny. Yeah, that was fine. Yeah, uh, you know, dressing yeah. herself up really weirdly, singing badly. Mm-hmm. Like the part where she sort of, you know, pretends to be a villager and describes the Lady Catherine as an as like an insane person or something. Mm-hmm. Or, ugly i can't remember but and um, that one i think is in the book i think that i think that one where she and honestly i think it's better done in the book but i agree uh, but you know and then the and the other thing is that there's there's so there's this kind of interesting element right that we have in the film where we have the the names of the suitors kind of actually pops up in text with bullet points Mm. and that i think is then a kind of interesting so in the um, and it's a kind of interesting like other function that we have this kind of other sort of way of expressing things comes up the thing that we have in the book which i really like that we don't then really have she gets this uh book of saints and of the kind of saint stays from her brother and she does get that book in the movie but it doesn't i think play that dramatic of a role except for her kind of brief like maybe i'll be a saint but in the book it's that the headings then start to not only have the dates they also have it so and so saint days and like a fun fact about the saint including like at some point there's like a like so and so like killed his father and then became a saint i wonder how he did it yeah that is that was literally my favorite part about the book yeah. <laughs> i read it as a kid and is like yeah my favorite parts now especially now that like some of these saints i actually like know more about mm-hmm. them and I can uh-huh. appreciate that the facts about them were like very well chosen for comedic effect. Yeah. 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 And it's and it's well researched, I think, in terms of like the I didn't look up all of these saints mentioned, but in terms of the ones that I, that I recognized at least, I was like, all right. Yeah. And like somebody tried. And I think it's also a, you know, that rare thing. I think it is a fairly realistic depiction of like engagement with with religion by a normal person like she is not excessively yeah. devout but the saints feel sort of real and interesting to her and she is like engaging mm-hmm. with them in this way and they're sort of examples of people who she's kind of like using to process the world which i think is how people would have actually thought about saints and i can absolutely very much see that you know when you when you read some of these stories that especially for somebody who seems somewhat kind of hungry for adventure and for some way and for something different that these stories read as kind of adventure stories yeah, and especially because there are a lot of, like, women saying no to things. Uh-huh. You know, or, like, people going against whatever the rest of society tells them. Like, I'm sure that that mm-hmm. must have been, like, you know, in a society where you're sort of told you have to do what you're told, but then there are all these examples of people not doing that. Like, yeah. that must, I mean, you know, th- there must have been a sort of secret, like, reading against the grain happening a little bit for some mm-hmm. people. Yeah, and I can absolutely see see that. So we have a lot of stuff with uh, George and her friend Alice. 
Mm. and their eventual then marriages, not to one another. So the movie also, in my opinion, goes harder than the book on her having a slightly creepy crush on her uncle. Yeah, the book is a little more subtle about like, it's a little bit less clear to the extent to which it's like actually a sexual romantic thing and whether yeah. it's just, like he's handsome and is a grown up who pays her attention. Yeah, the the movie is very not subtle about it, which I'm not sure I adore that choice. It's it's a weird, I mean, given how squeamish the movie is about like a lot of the other gross bits of the Middle Ages. yeah. Like, I think someone having a crush on their own uncle is, like, not out of the question in the Middle Ages. No. But it's weird how they're, like, not squeamish about that being what's happening. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, and then it's like, is this supposed to fit together? I mean, is it less weird for her to have a crush on her uncle because she fundamentally doesn't actually understand what sex is? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it may be that because they've painted her in so in so many other ways as, like, such a child and, like, such an innocent that, mm-hmm. like, a more subtle reading of this, like, didn't really work. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So because George comes back from the Crusades and is this kind of like both this sort of exotic figure because he's like associated with the glamour of the Crusades, which makes sense Mm -hmm. um, in like historical context. And also seems to be someone who kind of like takes her seriously. Yeah, that he's I mean, he's to her to some extent. Yeah, and as a major, you know, he's he is younger than her mother. It's her mother's brother, right? And he is he is younger, and so he's you know still significantly older than her, but you know closer to her age than her parents. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, you know he he listens to her because also like her brothers, who does not in particular have much of a relationship with, at least not until the end. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and then you know, and so yeah, her, you know, it's kind of. George is her favorite person and Alice is her favorite person. And then they fall in love with each other. And in the book, she actually curses them. Yes. Like, or makes an attempt to curse their love. And then is sort of like racked with guilt when their marriage doesn't actually, like their relationship doesn't actually work out. That isn't, that doesn't, that part doesn't happen. In the movie, movie, she's just like really mean. Yeah. Which... Also, I thought was like a legit, like I like I didn't hate the way that like I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think that like it would her feelings about all of that, like they were, mm-hmm. but I think they felt like not un like sort of genuine, mm-hmm. and like that she would be sort of bothered by this, and that she would you know lash out at other people because she was you know that all felt actually mm-hmm. very real. It didn't feel and unrealistic. That, like, it, that, that then they immediately got married. They like married were married. Right. People. Yeah. Didn't actually have to do anything. <laughs> like because right. didn't necessarily work out. Like that also. Yeah. Yeah. I think my one issue with it was that I think it to some extent made it harder not just for us to like this character, but also it made it harder, I think, to understand why anybody else likes this character. I mean, in terms of other characters in the film, I guess, I was like, I kind of, the way she acts in the movie or in the book, I can see that like she and Alice stay friends. The way she acts in the movie, I'm kind of like, I I think I would end this friendship if I were Alice. Yeah. I would say in general, they kind of, I mean, the combination of her like bizarre naivete about things Mm -hmm. and her like 
they make her just like pr- genuinely really self-centered yeah where and like kind of just like she just genuinely like seems to be like obsessed with herself and her own like feisty ways mm-hmm. and any attention to anyone else and like when you look at it like in the movie in, like in, in the book anytime she has some money she spends it all on like presents to other people yeah it's actually yeah, really like, nice like she is actually like you can tell that she is like kind of like kind of naive kind of you know head in the clouds but like a genuinely warm-hearted person who like cares deeply about her friends and mm-hmm. really doesn't come across in the movie at all Right. And that her her kind of one similar act, right, it comes a lot later, structurally speaking, in the movie than it does in the book. And so then it very much kind of seems like it's like, oh, it's like this like turning over a new leaf kind of thing that like you have you finally become a semi-decent person, I guess. Yeah. Or like it has finally <laughs> occurred to you that you are not the only person in the universe. I mean, because there's there's a part in there where her best friend Perkin, the goat boy, like in the movie, he gets this monologue where he's like, you never ask me anything about myself mm-hmm. and like, don't actually care about me and just like monologue at me. But the weird thing yeah. is that isn't the relationship in the book at all. Like she does listen no. and she like, you know, I think she does like try to bring his problems to her and then like he tries to solve them with reason and she's like, no, I don't care. Like they do fight. Yeah. But like, it isn't true in the in the book that like she doesn't listen to him ever. No, I mean, and also, I mean, so then there's also this whole bit that gets cut out where there's this uh, this guy named Jeffrey who is fostering uh, in her household and she's kind of got a crush on Jeffrey. And then she spies on Jeffrey and she sees Jeffrey making fun of Perkin. I believe specifically he's like mocking Perkin's disability. Mm-hmm. And she then goes like, okay, fuck Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. And there is some amount of like decency, right? That she is ultimately going to choose to defend this friend of hers. And we get to see that. Whereas we actually, in the movie, we have an episode where Perkin comes to talk to her when she's like with like Alice and George and she's like, you know, screw you pig boy. Yeah. It's like, it kind of, yeah. It, like it really makes like Perkin kind of ends up being her sort of like, like they, you, you can see more of his subjectivity because it's mm-hmm. a movie and like he's actually played by an actor, but like basically he's kind of her like weird sidekick who she completely takes for granted yeah but Um, yeah so i guess that's that's where it is for me i guess is that i'm fine with the fact that me a 35 year old woman watching this movie doesn't want to be friends with birdie it's okay that i reading the book at 10 wanted to be friends with birdie and i watching this movie at 35 don't healthy even yeah (laughs) yeah like that's not a bad thing But as I said, I just, I don't understand why anybody else wants to be friends with her either. Like, watching this movie, I'm like, yeah, no wonder her parents want to get rid of her. Yeah, and she just, like, I think also the degree to which she is, and this is partly a matter of, I think, the stuff they cut out to Mm -hmm. to sort of keep moving the story along. I think they cut out a lot of the things in which she is fully immersed in the life of the village yeah um and kind of like acting like a regular person of her time and like the whole thing where she is like her one of her roles on the manor is to like do herbal remedies from mm-hmm. like like give them to people or like the part where meg the dairy maid gets married and she's like helping with that like like there are a lot of things mm-hmm. where it's like like all they have is like her complaining about ever ever being asked to do a chore ever 
And like, right. she, like complains about certain things, but there also she seems to spend a lot of her day like doing the things that she's supposed to be doing, like helping people. Yeah. Things as you would like when she's or like, you know, there'll be kind of like raucous events in the hall and she's like mm-hmm. an enthusiastic participant in that. Like, like she's very much like part of her society in the book in the way that like, I think because the movie had to be a little bit simpler because of time, like, yeah, just she's kind of like, it's all about like how she's so special and nobody understands her. And then it also, I think fundamentally it, I mean, I think that's, okay, there's a lot of reasons that the ending doesn't work for me. Um, and we'll, are going to say more about the ending. I mean, so I, I think we have to step back quite before I'll end to like say a couple other things where we get to the ending. So I'll just say now that, you know, there is that big, like the whole village comes out in support of her at the end moment. Like, why? They would not, yes. why they even like Why? Her? Why aren't they like, oh, thank God she's leaving. Yeah. Because yeah. she doesn't seem like she really has like relationships with any, but like she seems like she like shows up every now and then and is annoying and they have to be nice to her because she's the Lord's daughter. And sometimes they like get mud on each other together. Yeah. And she has like basically no understanding about how like anything works. Yeah. In like life or society or. Like, yeah. Yeah. She seems like at best for these villagers. She's like this annoying kid. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about her marriage situation. Mm. So the, the suitor who is not turned away by her antics Mm-hmm. is uh, Sir Henry Murga. I mean, there's assorted other names there that I'm not going to bother with, but who is consistently nicknamed Shaggy Beard. Which in the book is just her nickname for him. And in the movie, I guess for simple, for clarity reasons, everyone just calls him Shaggy Beard for some reason. Yes. Though, just like, everyone, everyone thinks he is named Shaggy Beard. Yeah. Cool. Sure. That's just how he's known. Yeah. And she tries to freak him out and is not successful. And he thinks this is charming and funny in ways that are deeply creepy and weird. Yeah, which I think is, I mean, I, it was deeply creepy and weird. Honestly, that part was probably true to life and also fairly true. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that I'm fine with. And uh, she gives her this purse of money that says, so he's, you know, he's also given money to her father and then gives her gifts with the kind of understanding that if you accept these gifts, like if you actually spend this money in particular, then you have effectively consented to this marriage. Mm-hmm. She is supposed to be marrying this guy and is uh, working hard to stop this with not a great deal of success. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, Alice did not marry George. Alice married this nine-year-old and the nine-year-old died. Yeah. In the book, I think he's like actually seven. He's like even younger in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And then he died. And then she now wants to marry Catherine's brother, Robert. Right. And I do think, I do think it's an interesting move. And this is to some extent in both the book and the movie that she just thinks of Robert as her brother who sucks And I think I kind of like that she, I think it's done better in the book than it is in the movie, but, and she has like this really like nice reflection upon this in the book that she doesn't really have in the movie, but I do conceptually like that she, the idea that she just thinks of her brother as this like annoying older brother and has to then kind of grapple with the fact that she has this friend who sees him very differently. Yeah. And yeah that felt totally legit to me that like he would be her annoying older brother and like alice would see him as like this you know sexy young man yeah 
Yeah. With like shining eyes and strong hands. Yeah. With that, that's coming from the book, I think, the description. Yeah. And in the book, their marriage is then concluded with no problems. But in the movie, the sort of like crux of it is that I guess they cannot offer enough money. Catherine's family cannot offer enough money to Alice's family for Alice to marry Robert. And so Catherine contributes this like purse of silver from Shaggy Beard so that her brother can get married, thereby also dooming herself to her marriage to like her marriage which honestly like like that is like a sort of contraction of events that were like a little bit longer and more complex in the book was fine with me Mm -hmm. Um, it's like that's actually one example where the Catherine in the book was like kind of more annoying than the Catherine in the movie because in the book Mm -hmm. she ends up spending the purse of silver to like rescue this dancing bear I actually find the dates, the dancing bear sort of charming. I mean, obviously it's a very like not well thought out idea to uh, buy this dancing bear, but it's at least that's kind of like, and like you want to like save this animal, like that's kind of charming. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I believe that like someone who was raised as she was raised would have the luxury of being as sentimental about animals as she Mm. is like portrayed as being like that's borderline unrealistic to me especially that she like refuses to eat birds. That's ridiculous to me. I can kind of buy that there is like to some extent in one's head, like a distinction between a bird and a bear. And that even with like, not quite as much sentimentality about as animals as like, we now probably have that, you know, you do have like household pets. Yeah. And Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I get that she's sentimental, for example, about her dogs or her birds, um, but the idea that she's like resistant to cruelty of animals in like any form. Right. Unrealistic to me. Um, And also like, I didn't look this up, but I'm very curious about the whole, like what, what ends up saving the bear is that like Robert convinces the Abbey, the abbess of a neighboring like convent who keeps a menagerie to take the bear yeah for the bear and like i would love to i'll know be talking more about menageries fact, later if there was in fact a menagerie in a convent in england in 1290 uh, that feels like borderline to me whether that seems realistic uh, yeah i i will be talking more about menageries later but my sense is that that is not realistic okay <laughs> um so yeah i didn't like that whole episode not being in the movie fine with me so yeah, so now we're at the point where right where she's um she's agreed to marry Shaggy Beard. She's bummed about it. There's a sad montage. Right. She uh she briefly tries to escape. She runs off to Uncle George's and has this whole like uh, you know, and George is like the crusades aren't that cool. And she has this whole like bonding moment with Ethel Fritha where then she's like, you know, we could go off on an adventure. Like, you know, we could go like off like some like random weird place. Like we can just like take off. And she's like, oh, then I'd like never see my family again. And actually that kind of bumps me out. Yeah. And there were sort of subtle differences between the the actual, the epiphany she has in the book and the epiphany she has. Yes. Obviously I like the book better the differences aren't that important. Like, right. As a, there's like one particular detail that I'm going to talk about, but in general, I would say that, you know, the, the distinctions there, I was like, all right, this seems like a fine, like contraction of that scene. Yeah. And there's the ending. Oh God. 
This is like when for like when I was watching it, I was texting Sarah being like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like, so, OK. And I will just say I. It had been a long time since I'd reread the book and I didn't quite remember exactly what the ending was, but I was just watching this. I'm like, this can't have been the ending, could it? And then I reread the book and I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. So, OK, let's maybe start with in the book what happens is that she sees the messengers coming. She kind of like runs away in a panic. She has this um, epiphany. And then she comes back and finds that the messengers from Shaggy Beard actually were coming to say that Shaggy Beard was dead, that he had like died in the tavern brawl. And his clean, educated, age-appropriate son was offering to honor the betrothal in his stead. And she's like, cool. That doesn't I- seem so bad. Yeah, that do- like in terms of my options, that seems fine. And like, I have had this epiphany that I can be whoever I am in my life and like I can like exist in my own circumstances in like whatever circumstances and like I can thrive despite this despite being married or whatever it is and so and also that I mean and also that there's some kind of like hints at least that like in the grand scheme of like an arranged marriage is the expectation that pretty much any woman of her class status and in fact most class statuses basically would have had that she's like okay, this doesn't seem that bad. And I appreciate that element, including also that there's these kind of like little things and it's like, okay, at least like in, they talk a lot about gift giving Mm -hmm. and that he had given a gift, you know, to as a like support gift to like his father's betrothal. And it was like this like little knife. And she was like, well, that's actually kind of a cool gift as opposed to this like dumb sewing kit that my future husband has given me. And that at the end, he like gives her something with a bird as the like gift to mark that now they are the ones who are betrothed. And I kind of like that element that there is this like, oh, the rituals of uh, a kind of formal, you know, courtship and engagement are kind of giving off these signals that this person is not the absolute worst. Yeah. And like, but also I think the thing that like makes it work is that she has also realized that like she is not, she gets, she like her, like she has to be who she is in the world and she has to make whatever choices she needs to make in the world. And that like, she doesn't need to be perfectly free externally in order to like mm-hmm. be a, be herself and like be a legitimate being in a sort of yeah. inside. And so that like on some level, it sort of doesn't matter who she's marrying. Like she is always going to be constrained by her society to some extent, but like she is going to exercise agency as best she can within that and like do her best to thrive. And so like, you know, it's like, Stephen seems fine, but we never actually meet him in the whole book. No, like, I mean, maybe Stephen fine. isn't fine. Um, um, but like, yeah, it's, we, it's a hopeful note, but. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was like a rough note. Or like, I mean, I remember like my classmates at school were like very annoyed by that. And were like, why didn't she marry Perkin? At the end. <laughs> but I mean, but I really like it. I mean, and I you know, too. and. Yeah. And it fits very well with, I don't know, realities of uh, medieval women, that there's a sense of having having some like agency within constraints, right? That to some extent, people would kind of take certain aspects of the gender system granted and realize that this is how it works and that you're not in fact going to escape that entirely, but that you think about ways where you can have agency and a sense of self within that. And that's actually something that as a, you know, a historian of medieval women and gender, not in England, but you know, that's fine. That I buy. Yeah. I mean, and I just feel like also it's like, honestly, more hopeful. Like the idea that Mm -hmm. like, 
as a woman in his, like no women in history could ever be happy unless, unless they were allowed to do whatever they wanted at all times. Like, right. And like, I mean, but I feel like that is a very common thing that you see. Right. I mean, I think a lot of um, films and other media set in the middle ages that they present the lives of women as just uniformly equivocally miserable that every single aspect of being a woman, no matter where your class status is, awful. And I don't think that's actually how people would have experienced this in their everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, okay. So the ending of the book, Catherine called birdie is great. Yes. And then there's the movie. And I feel like the problem is that Lena Dunham was like one of those people from my fourth grade class mm-hmm. who didn't like the ending. Mm-hmm. She wanted Catherine called Birdie to like continue her ultimate feistiness. Uh-huh. Um, and so she like didn't have the nerve to do that as the ending. Mm-hmm. And so instead, like Shaggy Beard arrives and she's like in the carriage with him. By the way, carriage, the carriage whole thing. <laughs> I don't think that was a thing, but anyway. I mean, once again, the carriage looks like the carriage looks like decor that you would buy from your home from Urban Outfitters. Yeah, mm. Urban Outfitters carriage. Yeah. So yes. Anyway, um, yeah, and she's like trapped in the carriage, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, her father, who I mean, the, basically like the best we've gotten of her father thus far, right, is that her father, and this is in the book as well, that her father basically. That like, no, we're not giving up when people are like, yeah, your wife is probably going to die in childbirth. And like the child is also probably not going to make it. And he's like, no, we're not giving up. And that's our like one hint that her father is basically a decent person or has decent qualities. I mean, I think we have a lot of hints, both in the book and yes. in the movie. That, no, we have other hints. That, that the father and the mother actually have a pretty good marriage for the child. Yes, no, that's true. That's true. Um, in the movie, there are all these hints that, like, he feels really bad about marrying her mm-hmm. with Shaggy Beard, but, like, mm-hmm. he's doing it anyway because, like, he's a flawed parent with, like, you know, these, like, debts. In right. The book, he's... no indication that he feels bad about any of this because, as we've said before, like, there's no reason why he should. Right, right. And so, like, then his big redemptive arc is he, like, jumps up and is like, you can't take her away. And then Shaggy Beard reasonably is like, you spent all the money that I gave you. And he's like, well, haha. And then they end up fighting a duel, which, which is ridiculous. This is not, like, legally how anything no. just, like, no. owe someone a debt you owe them because you fight them. That's not no. anything. Oh, no. And In like, addition to that not being how anything works, this duel inherently is ridiculous. Her father's standing there in like some like silk robe and no armor. Except a helmet for some yes, reason. Yes, he's got one helmet that like doesn't look like it fits. And like it has been established that he's rubbish at sword play, which I think is actually like it is. I think it is probably true that like someone in his position would have been like meh at the fighting I'm not fine with that that was something that you had to like train at constantly and he doesn't seem like he does and so okay right but like and then like lena dunham didn't have the nerve to have him actually kill shaggy beard which is what i thought was going to happen also weird um instead shaggy beard like throws his back out and somehow the like collectivity of the village decides that that means he loses and therefore like Catherine and her dad win and he doesn't have to pay the money and she doesn't have to marry him 
and Shaggy Beard just leaves. And it's well, the like- people also like drag her from the carriage. And so it's this thing, right, where it's like, okay, like regardless of whether there's an argument that about like who won this duel, which like, I don't know, like, if you're accepting the duel as a premise, which I understand, which is inherently ridiculous, then it's like, okay, I mean, I can see that like this counts as a forfeit that you're like, I can't handle this because I threw my back out in the middle. But it's also like, again, she seemed so unpleasant that I don't understand why all of these villagers are like banding together to support her and bring her out of this carriage because I don't understand why they care about this person. I mean, also, I think it's like, Every, in this scene makes it makes the point that like somehow everybody in her world agrees with her and agrees apparently with the audience that like marrying her off to this guy is like basically a crime. Right. And the whole point of the book is that like she comes to realize that like everybody's got some unfair stuff that happens to them in their lives and like nobody has a lot of sympathy to spare for her because they have their own stuff going on. And, like, it's not, like, it is not actually that big of a deal that she is getting married off to an old dude who is, you know, just rich and not particularly nice. Like, that is the kind of thing that happens to a lot of people. And it's just, like, like the idea that somehow everyone in the village and her dad all agree that she's like yeah. really well done by in this case is just mm-hmm. but that's not the that's the opposite of the point the point is that like right like this is a thing that happens in this world like perkin is a surf like she has to get married her mom has to like have a million kids and like maybe mm-hmm. die a bunch of times like you know it's like Every you know, Morwenna has to like put up with Catherine. Like everybody has like really unfair, you know, yeah happens to them in their lives. And like the point is to try and like live however you can with like the structure that the world has given you. But like, like the idea that somehow everyone's like, oh yeah, like Catherine, like she should be free while the rest of us are still serfs to her dad. And like probably in the worst right. situation now that her dad like has financial problems. <laughs> Right. And I mean, in addition to that, I mean, this is just such a huge pet peeve of mine that there's so many movies about upper class medieval women who fundamentally don't understand the concept of an arranged marriage and think it is the height of unfairness that anybody could ever force that on them. And I will say, like, even in the book, even if Catherine's not happy, she still seems to, I would say, I would say even consistently, she kind of accepts the possibility of an arranged marriage and is just like, I don't like this particular person. This particular person seems unpleasant. Or like, I don't want to be married. I don't want to marry right now, but like, not like, it is somehow surprising to me that this is how the world works. Right, exactly. She does not, like she she only seems shocked insofar as there's some amount of like, what already, I would say, but that I don't think she, but that I don't think there's anywhere near as much of a sense in the book that she like completely rejects the concept that this could ever happen to her. It just happens at a moment when she's like, I kind of didn't think I'd have to deal with this for another few years. And again, I kind of wonder if what went on is that like, they did too good a job of portraying her as a believable 14 year old. And they therefore Mm -hmm. could not have a happy ending in which a 14 year old gets married off to somebody yeah I mean especially so, because like, I mean she does seem very young the way that they have played her in this movie yeah and I suspect that a lot of 14 year olds who felt that young were 
like did in fact get married and in in the middle yeah. and that's kind of messed up by our sensibilities and like it's not that that and i think that just like that doesn't fit the modern mm-hmm. the standards for like what constitutes like a comedic like a happy ending for like a sort of relatively rom-com either. yeah yeah um, like that like the idea that this person who has clearly like not really been given the chance to grow up much in the whole course of this movie mm-hmm. would like be getting married somehow even under slightly less bad circumstances like probably feel like probably just like that didn't feel like it would fly but then it's weird it's because like it whole, also this whole ending is ju- i just feel like there's like a whole lot of cowardice in the storytelling like it's just unwilling yes. to do anything that is like uncomfortable to the point where like the ending doesn't make any sense and it also, I think, is weirdly then actually less hopeful than it pretends to be because uh, so you didn't you're not marrying that person in theory now. But first of all, that person is even out there like this. This could easily be a court battle, not to mention like, OK, how do you know that the next person who's selected for you, even if you don't have to marry that person, you know, there's still a like vague specter of marriage in the future. The other person could also be awful. We do have like a suitor kind of approaching in the background on the Juana horse at the end of the film. And so I think it is the axe to fall. Like, yes, exactly. It's like, it's trying to make it more hopeful, but I think it's actually less hopeful. Yeah. And I think the other thing is like, again, I think the amount of energy that this movie devotes to like having a redemptive arc for her dad, I think is really fascinating. And I think part of, part of that, I wonder is if it's because for, you know, Lena Dunham or for, you know, the rest of us, like having a sort of, a deeply flawed parent who like Mm -hmm. does their best, but is like not actually like, like that kind of feel that is like more relatable in some way or like, yeah, to her than having like a parent who doesn't actually really think much about what makes you happy because that's not how their job is like described. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like sort of, you can't, you know, like, I feel like th- this whole idea of, like, him being, like, this sort of flawed guy who makes mistakes and is, like, has a, rede- and, like, then tries to redeem himself later with this big grand gesture, like, feels very modern. Agreed. And, like, I don't hate that you, like, see more depth to his character, but, like, the kind of depth that you see is dumb. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I I think it would have actually been more interesting and showed more depth, arguably, if you could have had a father who is not a horrible person. He clearly cares about his wife. He, in his own way, cares about his children and that he, you know, wants that he, like, is taking the attention he is supposed to take for what their positions are going to be in life. And that is his job. But that he yeah, isn't up for this just like, of course, no, no matter what, this person couldn't have to ever possibly do something she doesn't want to do. And I think that actually is more complex if he is a decent person who makes a choice that we as a modern audience don't necessarily like. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and also, I think it is legitimately possible that like he is concerned that no one will want to marry her at all. Like she is not described as being very attractive either in the book or the movie, like she, you know, clearly it doesn't have a lot of the like womanly refinements. And while in the, 
book, they are not like actually super cash strapped. Like they are not very well off. Right. So, in a way that is not unrealistic because there is a lot of people right. of like that level of nobility who are like, who like have land and have like this kind of status, but are relatively cash poor. Like that's normal. Yeah. And so like you could see a depiction of someone who is sort of doesn't really understand his daughter, doesn't really care to, but like feels that it's true that like the best thing for her and for the family is for her to make the sort of most prestigious alliance possible, given that she's not a particular prize in like on the market. And like is sort of not like like that that's just the way that he's looking at it. And you know, that doesn't make him a bad person. But he's, you know, that's just sort of how, and like, yeah, I just like, I don't understand why they couldn't let him be like, in modern terms, legitimately a pretty bad dad. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it maybe is just, there are things where like, I think in the book, she feels like very lonely when it feels like nobody else understands where she's coming from and why she's upset about all of these things. Right. And maybe if they let that, if they went too hard on that in the book and in the movie, like, and seeing it visually, seeing like her being like, this isn't okay. And everyone being like, what's wrong with you? It Mm -hmm. would feel very depressing and gaslighty. Yeah. I know it's hard to, I could see that it being hard to not make that tragic, but, but I don't know. I just, I feel like there could have been a different kind of way to do, especially because so in even the context of the film, I thought the whole duel scene came off so unrealistic as to seem fantastical, like to the extent that my guess actually was that it was going to turn out to be a dream sequence. Yeah. Yeah. It just felt completely like the way they have set things up, it makes no sense, honestly, that even with this guy throwing his back out in the middle of the duel, I still don't buy her father not losing intensely, especially because like that looks like a serious wound that he has, which is, I guess, fine. Okay, whatever. Well, yeah, because it's like the brother CAD file, like magic of you yeah. know, nobody you care about ever dies. Yeah, um, we have there, there's an herb, don't worry about it. But like, it's like a, looks like a serious wound, like in his chest. Like that does not look like something to, you know, that looks like something to be taken seriously. Uh, and then like the whole, like the whole village intervening thing and like Shaggy Bear just all of a sudden becomes sort of like weirdly ineffectual. It, it seemed like her fantasy. And then the movie kept going and I was like, oh, weird. I guess that's what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think I think Lena Dunham had a memory of this movie as being like all feisty girl power. Yes. Was unwilling to make a film that contradicted that, even though, in fact, the book is a lot more complex than that. And that is why we like it. Yes. But yeah, I think I, I think you are right about the fact that that is not why Lena Dunham liked the book. So. Okay. So yeah, at this point, and we've already touched on some of these things, uh, but we can get into the at falso section or right and wrong in terms of uh, what do you think this movie did well and what we think it did not so well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, we've already touched on a few things. There's a couple of other things that I wanted to make sure to know. So first of all, uh, to go back and answer our question about 
bears and uh, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, in the book and film version of this. So that, yeah, in the book, there's this whole thing with this like dancing bear that she buys. And then they like find this like monastery that has a menagerie and like donate the bear to the monastery. In the book, there's, or in the, or in the movie, there's this whole thing where in terms of her, her father is like, irresponsible spending that among other things he's like bought a tiger and the tiger shows up and the tiger's dead and he spent all of this money on this like dead tiger there were menageries my sense reading in terms of the research i was doing is that really they would have been primarily things kept by royalty i couldn't find any evidence of monasteries or even like lords certainly not lords of this stature aspiring to having a menagerie which is an extremely expensive thing to maintain yeah hugely expensive and yeah i've never read about a monastery or a menagerie that was that was like any anything but a royal menagerie yeah dancing bears i think like you know a single wild animal kept as a like spectacle and sort of like used as an income producing thing. I think that is real. Although it would, I mean, it would have been a bear. Like you wouldn't see a dancing tiger. Yeah. Probably. I mean, a bear inherently makes more sense because there are, I believe there are bears in England. I don't know if there are bears, there are bears in Europe, certainly. Uh, yeah. Period. Whereas uh, like getting a tiger is like a real, that's a serious endeavor. Yeah. So like there would have been harder than getting a bear. Well, there would quite possibly have been tigers in England at this time. So um, at the, so the Tower Menagerie, actually. So in, so in the Tower of London was a royal menagerie. And uh, I don't think I found a reference to a tiger, but I think there were some leopards. Okay. So yeah, like the idea that there is like a royal menagerie, like that there is like a menagerie in England with like non-European cats, at least is not outside the realm of possibility, but that that would really only be something that like the King of England would be aspiring to is my sense. Yeah. Which I think, I mean, again, there is, I mean, I think, you know, and as we've said, some of this is deliberate anachronism, but I think there's a sort of general muddling of what the actual status of this family is. Yes. Because on the one hand, they keep talking about how they don't have any money and they're like, you know, he's like drowning in debt and all this stuff. But then Catherine has a different outfit in literally every single mm-hmm. scene. And she has a room that is just hers with Morwenna that's like huge. And Whereas in the book, it's like there's constantly people sleeping in her room also. Yeah, and like and she's whole, like, it's really annoying. Yeah, it's like a whole point that like her room is not just for her. And like her parents' room is also not just for her parents in the book. Mm-hmm. And like the hall is not just... For, so it's like the whole these all these scenes where they're like all sitting in the hall but it's like just four of them yeah they're all sitting on like one side of the table like the last supper but like there's no one on the <laughs> other side like there doesn't seem to be in the hall and you're just like why are you all sitting on one side if there's like nobody else there <laughs> anyway that bugged me right it's like weirdly empty medieval manner right yeah like this um, completely empty medieval manner and like sort of like what constitutes wealth is like wildly it's like Mm -hmm. you know the amount of stuff they have is way too much and the amount of space they have is way too much 
But that also feels very modern, especially in terms of the amount of stuff that I think that's one of the things that fundamentally people often don't conceptually understand about the Middle Ages, the idea that material goods like clothing are extremely valuable, expensive items. And so you don't have a new outfit that you wear basically every day that any of us didn't have that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That like our closets, like fundamentally are not like our closet, like we have bigger closets or like more extensive wardrobes than the vast majority of medieval people would have had as like relatively ordinary people on, you know, academic salaries. Um, yeah. And that's something that I, I really appreciated about the book, too, is that she talks a lot about how like most of her clothing has stains in it. And like, yeah, like that. and like you know, that she, like, doesn't want to wear her best kirtle to, like, kneel on the floor of the church because she doesn't right. want to. And, like, that She's is... Like, and then it'll get it dirty, and I feel like God will, like... And I feel like God still wants me to, like, look nice for, like, mass sometimes, so I should keep my one really good kirtle clean. Yeah, and, like, you know, her best gown... Her second best gown still has stains on it, and so she has to, like, hide mm-hmm. it. It's like... And that... I mean, I think that the thing is, like, that doesn't make her poor. That just makes her, like, a person with a realistic wardrobe for her time. Yeah. Um, And the kind of, like, and so there's, like, too much glamour in some sense. Yeah. Except that they're constantly described as being, like, poor. I mean, I guess it's that, like, watching this movie, I'm like, yeah, no, it makes sense, I guess, that you're desperately impoverished since you have, like, 19 silk bathrobes. Like, Yeah, if they had explained that he had like wasted the family money on bathrobes, I would have been like, well, the evidence is before my eyes. So like And I think they did actually sort of in- indicate that he was like buying all of these nice things because he felt like household had to seem like it was up to the like standard of living that his wife had grown up with and that meant like all of this like nice clothing and household goods. Yeah, although again, and a tiger apparently. That's like such a modern <laughs> way of thinking about wealth yes. and poverty, right? It's like Yes. That like you you get poor because you are consuming too many things. Like it's like a buying yes. consumption problem. Like you spend all your money and like well, it's also I feel like like a, a a knight who is like making his in making like is living mostly like off the land and control over serfs. Like he's not gonna have all this money to just like not no poor in the sense of not having a bunch of ready cash. But they're not poor in the sense of having spent all their money on like, you know, buying shit on Amazon. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's it's like one of those things that it's like, it's both modern, but it's also this like weird fundamentally classist assumption that if you're not rich, it's probably because you're like irresponsible with your money and buying too much avocado toast. Yeah. Like that kind of feels like what they're saying about this family. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, that, I mean, partly I think because we assume that if you're an aristocrat, you have to be fancy. And like they can't mm-hmm. explain how you're how she's like in the aristocratic class, but like not fancy. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is not like that they have made poor choices. It's that like that's you know they were probably you know cash poor, which again um, is relatively common for like lower level gentry in thir- in late thirteenth century England. I mean that would not have been that unusual. Yeah, I mean, in the book, she has a line about something like we have plenty of like geese and apples, but no like rich hangings and tap. Or, yeah. and, and oh, that's that's reasonable. Like that is the yeah. situation there. Yeah, yeah. I have a couple of things that I wanted to mention, uh, which I was actively offended by. Yay! So I'll do a small one and then a big one. The small one 
when we have Ethel Frida kind of going off on their kind of possible adventure, uh, she used to see term Moorish country, a term that, as I have talked about in other on this podcast, the terms more and Moorish are terms that uh, we tend to not use anymore in academia because they are never terms that people, North African Muslims or Muslims in general or North Africans in general, they are never terms that they would have used to describe themselves and are terms that arguably in their usage is like intentionally offensive and in the Iberian context in particular, is often about like marking Muslims as foreign when they're kind of not foreign. Yeah. So I actually, something I know this, I don't know if you know this, this when we went in rereading the book is that the oh, yes. word that she uses in the book is Turk. Yes. Which I assume Karen Cushman thought of as the least offensive alternative, but is actually right. not accurate because the use of yes as like someone who as like a generic term for a middle eastern or like the ottoman turks were not a significant power in the middle east no. region until like late 14th century so like this is not actually uh, this is i mean actually probably the word would have been saracen which is also offensive yes so um, i but there's so many deliberate anachronisms in this movie that I don't think I believe that she chose this term because it was a more accurate term because I kind of genuinely don't believe that she cared. I mean, I think Moorish is actually also more of a later term. That's true. I mean, or not in this particular, yeah, I was going to say, or not a a particularly English term. Yes. Like, again, I think Saracen would have been the term. Right. But she could have just named a place, right? She doesn't have to say, let's go to Moorish country. She could have said, let's go to Morocco. Yeah. Or let's go to Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I think she talks about Cathay and then like Sultan, and she doesn't specify which one, both of which are like vaguely Orientalist, but like, yes, unrealistically so. Yeah. And but anyway, but it jumped out to me, especially because like there have also been a number of comments that have been made about like Lena Dunham being like intensely insensitive about race. Yeah. So I, 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 that's really my idea. My sense is that like, honestly, especially cause like you're not dealing in any way with like the Orientalism of all of this, like just, just, just name some places. Yeah. I mean, and especially if you've already made the choice to like make the world of Catherine called birdie, a more multi-ethnic place then and then with that line specifically being put in the mouth of a black woman also seems weird to me yeah it just seems yeah i think it it was like that was clearly like like not a and a like choice that lena dunham made but more like something that clearly tells on her and like how she how she yes Uh, yes yeah agreed yeah so the other that thing that I hated. <laughs> yes, then there's a big thing that I hated. <laughs> I think I maybe have a slightly different opinion about this, but go on. Okay, so this movie takes place in the year 1290. The year 1290 is, uh, and I spend a lot of time complaining about the exclusion of Jews from media 
So the year 1290 is uh, the year in which King Edward I expelled the Jews from England. And it, you know, coincides with the timing of the film and the book that the expulsion degree is in July of 1290, with Jews being having having been expected to leave the kingdom uh, by All Saints Day. And there was like another letter sent out about this in early November. This is something that is present and acknowledged in the book. And I don't think the book necessarily deals with it entirely well, I will say. In particular, there's this bit toward the end where she's like, I'm like the Jews. She said, I am like the Jews in our hall, driven from England from one life to another. And yet for them, exile was no exile. And she has this like a weird romanticism about the like exiled Jews, which I will say, like, I don't know. It's, I think it is bad as a take. I think that it is also the case that the whole idea that we have this character as being vaguely like intrigued by the Jews as opposed to just hating Jews and thinking that they killed Jesus, you know, honestly, I I don't know, who knows, but I certainly like think that, you know, I can see the argument like weird appropriative reaction is like maybe the best somebody would have gotten as like a Christian elite in 13 in late 13th century England. I do think that if you're going to make the choice to set something in the year 1290, I do think that this has to be acknowledged. And especially because it's in the source material of the book, I think it is really gross personally that Lena Dunham makes the choice that like, this is not even acknowledged. Like Jews do not exist. Yeah. Okay. I I definitely agree with that point. Like, again, especially because she's like created all of this other diversity and then like has just, but then this is, I mean, like, she's where they're like several black people who are treated completely normally, but there are no Jews. Um, and that's very like, much this like, I mean, and that very much feels like these, like this, like intense blind spot about race, right? Is that you're going to like, I get, don't get me wrong. I like the casting, but I do think it's a weird move when you embrace having diverse casting, but then also pretend that we're in a world where there's no such thing as any kind of a racial or like quasi-racial or religious division, which is then what we get. Yeah. I mean, I think like it's this weird thing where it, it like creates, it like throws in what sort of the sort of most obvious what we think of when we think of diversity, but like doesn't actually look at the complexity of like that they like the first thing that they would have thought of when it comes to social division and complexity and like oppression. The reason that I, I I agree with you that like leaving the Jew, leaving the existence of Jews out altogether is messed up. The actual episode from the book is really cringy though. It is. I fully agree. And like, but I'm not sure the answer is to erase it more. Like, right? Like, I mean, I'm like the episode in the book, it's it is very much this kind of like weird romanticization, right? Like, I feel like this is like this magical Negro thing where like the Mm -hmm. these these people are in this like intense moment of trauma and Mm -hmm. the and like Catherine just like hangs around and kind of stares at them for a while. And like they give her some of their food, which like I'm sure they don't have a ton of that. And then she right. just like follows them on the road again while they're like potentially like fearing attack and violence and like having to mm-hmm. make and like going through some shit. And like in the course yes. of it, like apparently this older woman has the time and emotional energy 
to like help Catherine like have an epiphany about her own life and like that's kind of all right and then they're like taken away it's like it's just like a really and I feel like the whole purpose of this is like kind of just to signal right off that like Catherine's not anti-semitic absolutely and And I completely agree that the way it's dealt with in the book is bad I just don't think the answer is let's just pretend they don't exist sure but like given that Lena Dunham made such a hash of everything where the book was actually good I just I don't know that I want to watch what she would have done with that source material no but I didn't want to watch the rest of it either (laughs) why do we do this to ourselves (laughs) uh I mean as I yeah, said, no, you're right. They should have, like, she should have just, like, acknowledged, like, she should have taken the existence of Jews and, like, the the exile of Jews in 1290 and, like, done a different thing with it. I mean, there could have just been, like, a kind of, like, factual, like, moment of experiencing this, right? I mean, you could have even, like, skipped the part with the family and just, like, been, like, oh, I'm kind of seeing this thing happening or, like, there's, like, it, like I feel like even, like, a couple of offhand comments on it I actually don't think would have been a bad thing, especially because, I mean, they're... She and, she and Perkin could have just watched them on the road. Right, yeah. Like, I don't think that would have been... I think that would have been arguably better than the book. And, you know, and, and as I said, I, I don't think the book does this well at all, but given, especially how frequently like the existence of Jews is entirely erased, I don't think the answer to like, we have something that's problematic in the source material. So like about a group of marginalized people. So let's pretend those marginalized people just don't exist. Feels like an equally bad play. Yeah. Or like maybe worse, honestly, I think it might be worse. Is it worse? It's probably worse. I kind of think it's worse. Because also it's lazy. It's definitely lazier. I mean, I think it's just like, I think it's also just like, it is the most serious example of like the consequences of this approach of like, I don't actually care about the Middle Ages. I care about this feisty young girl. Right. It doesn't actually matter to Lena Dunham that this is 1290. No, of course it doesn't. Uh, But it's also, I mean, but it then is also like there, I think it also kind of goes hand in hand with this kind of weird way in which the movie then also, I think, really kind of refuses to engage also with a lot of the class stuff I've been talking about as well, that, that I think that there that there also is this kind of like weird way in which it's like, okay, we're just like not going to really acknowledge the way that like the people in this village might be experiencing this like person who the way she's portrayed in the movie is coming off as this like extremely like spoiled brat, essentially, who is making our lives as like, not as like not particularly well-off peasants, like significantly harder. Hmm. And that that's charming and feisty, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, there's a certain, I, I think I would actually go so far as to say cowardice of like yes. just not wanting to put this main character in any situations in which there is like ambiguity. Yes, agreed. Or at least ambiguity of a like historical rather than kind of like purely interpersonal kind. Yeah. And because of that, I think, like, the, the character comes off as, like, really flat and self-centered and gross. Like, the com- character doesn't actually mm-hmm. come off that well, I think, because, like, no. all of that is gone. I mean, right. you know, the other scene that is um, 
that is not there in the book or that is there in the book and not there in the thing is the scene where she goes to see a hanging. Right. Yes. Which is an interesting scene, right? That she's like, oh, the hanging seems so fun. And then she experienced it and she's like, that kind of wasn't fun. Yeah. Like that's not fun. These people being hung are actually like kids. And I feel really ambivalent about this whole thing and like kind of bad about it. And I think and like, that like Lena Dunham, I think she chickened out because like, mm-hmm. it's not actually, it's, it's really hard to like do a scene where like somebody is like interested in hanging as entertainment and like yeah. participates in that, but then also feels weird about it. Yeah. And like, like, again, I think actually something almost similar could have been kind of done with the kind of grappling with you know, the expulsion of the Jews, right? That like, because so, so also in the book, right, there's a scene where she like talks about, she like sees the person who she then later realizes is King Edward after his wife has died. And she like has this like, oh, like he, she like feels like sympathetic toward him. Like, I mean, I think it would have been interesting, right? If like that had happened and then she'd like seen the Jews on the road and it's like, what's going on? And it's like, well, he kicked out the Jews. And then there is a kind of like, oh, and they're like, people and they're also like traveling on the road and seem very sad like would that have been trait still yes but would at least would there have been like some kind of like i don't know a grappling with something and to be catherine having an emotion that's about literally anybody but herself yes yeah which she does a lot in the like in, like in, in the, the book, book yes like you know to give her credit yeah and i think and yeah i just i think that like the tragedy of this is I feel like what drew me to the book originally was that she's like kind of gross and kind of like morally ambiguous as a uh-huh. character that like she likes a lot of things that are not to our sensibilities and yeah. is like a person of her time in a lot of really important ways, but then like also is sort of inquisitive in her mind in a way that like makes her a little bit like easier to identify with. And mm-hmm. I feel like they just took out all of the ways in which she is of her time because like they don't. Yeah. And cause she doesn't see, I mean, cause there is this like very frequent trope, right. Which I know we have talked about before of like, if for a person to be seen as compelling in movies set in the middle ages, they have to be like a modern person that you plop into the middle ages. And I don't think Catherine is that in the book. And, and even I would say like the thing with the Jews, like the, it is not good, but I will say, like, I can kind of see that, like, that kind of reaction is, I arguably, like, the best one can hope for in terms of, like, how a Christian in her position would relate to the Jews being expelled. Like, I can see the argument that that is, like, I mean, except for the, like, way that the Jewish woman in her conversation with her is represented, but I can see that, like, Catherine's perspective on it is not totally unrealistic. No, I mean, at some point she says something like, you know, the priest who is like preaching that like these people are terrible, like must, or the King, I guess, whoever like must've met some different Jews than these ones, because these ones seem fine, which I actually think is probably as far as someone in her position would really go. Right. They yeah, exactly. All of, like this whole structure of anti-Judaism is like really problematic and like clearly right. like, useful to Christians, but like not actually a like way of thinking about real Jews. Like that is not, you know, like, she would not come out with that, like, but she might come out with, like, yeah, these people seem fine. Like they must be. The yeah. Good right. Yeah. Like, and so, okay. As a thing to think, but like, is, yeah, I don't know. But it, like, it makes sense at least. Right. Like I, as I said, like 
not definitely not defending the moves made with the Jews in the book. But as I said, I, I think that there's an argument that it's like at least sort of realistic and that that's not the worst possible thing to do. And as I said, I think kind of just like completely pretending they don't exist is like, I mean, it's not the worst thing you could possibly do. I guess you could just have like straight up anti-Semitic tropes. I guess that would be worse. But I think like erasing them entirely is like the second worst thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, I don't know. Which is like, why? And it's clearly like she was like, she was a coward. Like, I think that's the answer is that she was a coward and it seemed hard and complicated and she didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. I think that that is true. And like, that sucks. And I don't think it makes for a good movie. Yeah. Boo. Boo. So any other details that you want to get into before? So I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about marriage in the Historia at Veritas section, but any other things that you wanted to get into before then? I mean, we've talked a lot about the aesthetic thing of it. The <laughs> only part that I just wanted to add is the the way that Alice's dad was wearing armor at all times for no reason. Oh, yes. That was also very silly. That was weird. I couldn't decide how I felt about the weird hot monks scene. I didn't totally hate the hot monks. The reason I didn't totally hate the hot monks is because I feel like the trope in a lot of things is that all monks are elderly. And so I think it is, I'm probably giving the movie too much credit, but I think it is like a funny take on that trope to then be like, oh, actually look at these sexy monks. Cause like there obviously would have been some like young monks that it would have been like, there would have been a range of ages in a monastery and so, there would have been a fair number of novices. And so, yeah, I mean, I think like, yeah. there would have been a fair number of young monks. Yeah, like I didn't, I did not hate the idea that like she could think the monks were hot. And the especially that she seemed a little surprised. Yeah. Was that funny, but like the sentiment no. of it, I felt like was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Con- like conceptually, I didn't hate that. Oh, the other thing, um, maybe we're going to talk about the like in the whole thing where she gets her period and is hiding it. So, I think that they did that probably because the thought of marrying someone off who had not even begun to menstruate, which is the case in the yes, book, like she does not act, she has not in fact started to menstruate at all, was like beyond the pale, and so they wanted to make it seem like more acceptable somehow or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, her like ignorance about what menstruation is is nuts. I don't understand. Yeah, that she's like, I'm dying. It's like, all right, come down. Yeah, don't I don't do understand why. They went through so much trouble to like have Morwenna show her exactly what she was supposed to do. And they had her wear underpants. I found that bizarre. Yes. Like people in the middle ages didn't wear, like nobody wore underpants in like the 1920s. I found it so weird that they went through so much detail and yet that it was wrong. Yeah. Like, like, I like, why did they have to do all of that explaining? Like they didn't even need to, they could have just said, you use rags to soak it up. And then they could have had yeah. the, like the weird plot line where she was like hiding them in the privy and then they got like that. Yeah. Part was, like whatever. But the fact that they like made the point of explaining this whole thing that was like completely made up made no sense to me. Right. Like, why are you explaining this thing that isn't real? Like this? Yeah. It's like a level of detail that you usually assume that level of detail is in there. Somebody looks something up, but that clearly was not the case. I, in fact, I genuinely would be shocked if Lena Dunham looked a single thing up while writing the screenplay for this. Uh, people film. did not use underwear 
to keep menstrual pads in place. Nope. Like, well, after even people were wearing underwear, like, you know, our mom's generation didn't necessarily do that. Like, that is not a thing that anyone thought was a thing. Yep. Ugh. And like, yeah, it was utterly bizarre. I know it is like, but I I know that like the idea that you could just like go around not wearing any underwear at all, like, while the historical norm is like weird to people, but I just, I don't know. I just like, don't understand. Ah. Again, I don't understand the level of detail, right? Like you don't actually need, like we did not need that scene to be that long, right? It could have just been like, come over here. Like, here's your cramp tea. Here's some rags. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I, I don't know, because there are so many sort of gory details in the mm-hmm. book that are cut out. And then they add that one in that's like completely gratuitous. And right. But the other thing yeah. is she kept talking about how everyone who was peasant, who were peasants had bad teeth. But she has perfect teeth. Right, like the, like, like as, as though like having bad teeth and having like various types of like bodily impairments would not be just a thing that like, right. was true of everyone in this period right yeah so let's now get into the historia at veritas segment where we talk about medieval marriage practices not this so not this so first of all the sense that one does not have choice in who one marries is first of all when we're talking about this specific case of like a teeny girl of nobility, obviously nobody thinks she gets to decide who she wants to marry, but also like boys of that social status don't get to decide who they want to marry generally. Also like anybody pretty much, like very few people actually have an expectation of marital choice that even if you're potentially like from a much lower status family, there are still like economic or social dynamics at work, which means essentially that the assumption is that like your parents probably decide basically who you're going to marry. I mean, honestly, I think there isn't an expectation of life choice. I mean, no, like you can only love as being necessary for marriage. Yeah. I mean, but like, you know, it's like you don't in the same way that nobody would really have an expectation of choice of what they do with their life apart from marriage. Mm -hmm. Like, like there is, you know, like the idea of kind of freedom as applied to pretty much anything is not right. So yeah, the, the idea that like choice and choosing your spouse is what will make you happy is fundamentally not an attitude that people would have had. Um, and nor is the idea that, uh, as I was saying also that like, nor is the idea that marriage is linked with love inherently, like, or even and like, or even necessarily that like, an okay, like that you can have an okay marriage and not love each other. Like that's, I would say would be like, yeah, no, that's probably the case for most people. Yeah. And like what makes, what makes for an appropriate match has a lot to do with the sort of compatibility of like your different families and their strategies and like your sort of economic situation and a lot less to do with like, I don't know, like, what do you talk about? Yeah. And as I said, I do like just kind of want to add in the fact that, of course, that again, like this is also true for men, especially when we're talking about about young men, like they're still the assumption is that their parents are basically making decisions 
And even if we're talking about adult men, especially when we have people of this status, they're probably, you know, if like Murga desperately wants to marry her, it's almost assuredly not because he likes her. It's because like he would have decided for whatever reason that having this kind of political like or social alliance with her family is useful. Yeah. And like, I think it probably it may have been the case that like, you know, there's like the, you know, the stereotype, you know, the kind of like wife of bath sort of stereotype that like. After, you know, if you are a widow several times over, eventually you just choose to please yourself because you don't need money anymore. Maybe that's true. Yeah, Um, there there might be some element of that, but. And like, it is probably the case that like the inclinations of their children were not entirely irrelevant to all parents. Right, that I'm sure some parents uh, were like, I hope you don't hate this person. Right. And like some parents probably were like, maybe I will make an effort to marry you to somebody who is vaguely of your generation. Or like who is not known for being super cruel or like, right. like sort of what counts as like an appropriate match. I think like yeah. in many contexts is not necessarily about like age appropriate, but it might just no. be this person is known for like carousing in the tavern all the time and like i don't right like, kid or something or like there are rumors about what happened to wife number one right um <laughs> yeah yeah or like you know or even right this person is like problematically in debt and like mm-hmm. i don't want that life for my kid right right that yeah that this is maybe not like that some people might have cared but that even when they cared caring is never I really hope you love this person and that this is absolutely the person you most want to be married to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that like, that is the only thing that matters. Yeah. Are you, are you going to talk about dowries? Yes, I am going to talk <laughs> about dowries. This movie aggressively misunderstands the system of financial exchanges surrounding marriage. Which is a little bit from the source material. <laughs> The source material doesn't help, but the source material is slightly better. Yeah, like, I mean, it is, like, just straight up, it is not universally, but, like, basically the case in the Middle Ages that where money changed hands, it is from the bride's family. Yes. Yes. So, and I looked up some, like, specific details for English context. I will acknowledge that in terms of like what I happen to have of my house, these these uh, specific details are talking more about like urban families in London, but still, but based on what I was kind of digging around, it seems like this was not entirely dissimilar in terms of, you know, more elite contexts. So the norm is that in the kind of major marital assign or like major form of marital gift uh, would have been the dowry, which is a sum of money that the family gives to their daughter with the, with the assumption that it then is in practice managed by the husband during the course of their marriage. And so that also, and that's the thing that is much more prominent in the film than in the book is this weird idea that marriage is how you marrying off a daughter is a good way to get money and that it is an infusion of cash. In fact, it is actively a loss of cash or of some kind of household wealth because you have to send off wealth with your daughter in order for her to marry. Especially also because so there is in the 
English marriage system at this time. And there are other things that are similar elsewhere. There is what we would call a dower. So essentially that there would be a contribution made from the husband's wealth. But that contribution is basically a a promise that I believe in some contexts, at least in England, it's like one third of my wealth when when slash if you are widowed, you get that. It is, it is not in this particular context. It's not like bride price. It is not money that is given to the father, which is the implication that this movie is really insistent on making is that he's going to get this cash infusion because somebody's basically going to pay him for the privilege of marrying his daughter, which is fundamentally not how this marriage system works. Yeah. Like there are societies where that's true. Medieval Europe was not that. No, no, because yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because, you know, dowry is dowry is the more important marital gift. And yeah, that like, even though we also have the dower, it's money that's going basically like the idea is that it is money or property that will go to the bride at some distant point in the future. And it is not anything that is given directly to her family. Yeah. And so and so what is change? The families of origin want when negotiating a marriage for their children you know, the idea that like what is actually going on, like this is not like a purely financial transaction of like no. paying money between these two families. Like the the value of the marriage is like much more in terms of alliances. Yes. Power. But also that like, if you were going to argue that, okay, we're going to have a marriage as a cash grab, it would actually make more sense the other way around. It would make more sense that they'd be like pushing Robert to get married yeah. And like with the idea that we get to bring in a dowry. Yeah. That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And also that these are like legal documents again, which I guess yes. like, that like, can't, you can't just like all cheer and like have that not be a thing anymore. Right. No, I mean, there is a sense, right. That a betrothal, I mean, a betrothal is not a marriage. Like they are not legally married, but there is a sense of like, this is being something that is legally binding in some sense. The fact that there was this, you know, exchange of consent and exchange of uh, goods that actually would mean something legally. The other thing I will note that the the book deals with a bit more fully than the film does is the idea that yes, you actually do have to consent to marriage, mm-hmm. which I don't want to take too far in the sense of like, are you in fact able as a 14 year old girl to, you know, in the vast majority of cases, are you actually going to feel like position where you have the ability to say no to, you know, a marriage that your parents are insisting on? Generally not. They're like, you know, not necessarily impossible. I do have, this is a, you know, a Jewish context from medieval Iberia, but that like, there is basically like a like discussion about like, okay, what happens if like, she actually just says no, like, how do we handle this? And so in that sense, I think like Catherine's continued resistance to the marriage, even after like her dad and Shaggy Beard have agreed on this and that like that being taken as meaningful in some way does actually make sense. Like it is actually relevant that she didn't consent. The whole thing about the betrothal gifts is, and like her accepting the money as being like a signal of her consent. Like, is that real? Not exactly. I would say, so like, I would say there is like some sense of uh, 
I mean, there is some sense of like financial exchanges conferring obligation. It would not be taken as it's not equivalent or it does not actually replace still consent. Like for a marriage to actually happen, there would still have to be a like exchange of words of present tense consent or future consent followed by sexual intercourse, right? Are the two ways that you would do this in medieval Christian Europe. Um, And like accepting this gift has like, that is not it. Like that does not do that legally speaking. Like you are not considered legally married. It does probably, I would say, create enough of an obligation that like now at least like, I mean, it is not feasible that her family would not basically have to pay all this money back. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and and the, the way it happens in the film. I could, and it does, I think, make sense as like a social agreement, if not a legal one. Yes. Well, and that like, even without the marriage, it still is a legal financial exchange, right? That there is still a sense that like money has changed hands and you have accepted this money. And, you know, and there would be a kind of, you know, that there, and there would be potentially a kind of different attitude if it's like, well, and then she suddenly fell, you know, she suddenly died. Mm -hmm. That's a different dynamic, but the, okay, like you actively accepted and used these things and then backed out on your agreement, that is legally problematic. Mm -hmm. And certainly at the very least, like you have to make restitution, like that, that, that money has to be paid back. Yeah. So the book is like meh on this and the movie is just garbage. Um, yeah exactly it's like they took source material that was like not amazing and then made it significantly worse yeah okay which it's a real move yeah i mean yeah (laughs) i wonder how well did this movie do do you know so i have to say i was astonished by how positive the reception seems to have been. Oh God. No. Um yeah, so it is um has an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty high. That's pretty high. Hmm. It seems to have yeah, it seems to have and I would say like it seems to have gotten a relatively positive response. Yeah, average rating of like seven out of 10 on Metacritic. It has a, according to Wikipedia, on Metacritic, it has a weighted average score of 74 out of 100. I mean, like, I guess if you care zero about historical accuracy, the movie is fine. I still don't think it's good, though. I still think that there is. But like, I think like maybe it's fine. I don't know. I mean, I still think that they like made the weird move, right? Of having this character genuinely don't think they make a case for anyone who has ever met this girl not hating her. Yeah. I think the end is dumb. I think the end is dumb. Even if you don't know anything about history, I think the end is still dumb. It is dumb. And I think it's also just like the whole charm. I mean, maybe, maybe this isn't true for Lena Dunham, but like, and maybe it's not true for other people, but I think like it's it's impossible to separate the charm mm-hmm. of the original source material from the gritty medieval details. Like that was the charm. Yes. Yeah. And 
that and that you could have the gritty details and still be fun also which is relatively rare right and i think something that is a big problem with a lot of medieval media is that it usually is like gritty and dour yeah it's like you know that like people can you know be hungover and gross and have no teeth and like there can be like grease everywhere all the time but like also you know they can be color exists and you have a good time sometimes yeah and like you know this girl can be sort of like interesting intellectually and also like very much of her time like that's yeah yeah so maybe just everyone is looking for something different from this yeah than we were i will say the other thing i i thought that the uh the credits were okay like the kind of yeah kind of like weird modernized medieval drawings i thought were quite funny that was funny i i actually i kind of liked the like bullet point lists when introducing some characters i thought that at least like was sometimes kind of entertaining i also like the the choice to use modern music i thought was completely fine and i was i was like yeah i liked that vibe and i think I I think I would have liked the aesthetic of the movie if I'd liked the movie more is overall actually what I think about this movie. Like I I think I kind of like the aesthetic in concept of like, let's just like do this like weird, like anthropology, free people, urban outfitters vibe and like make it kind of fun and colorful and like not medieval, but I don't know, they're having a good time. I I think... I think I would have liked that if I'd liked the movie, but that to me, it ultimately ended up just kind of feeding into the way in which I feel like this movie is overly self-consciously quirky. Yeah. And I think also just like, and again, I mean, if people felt less strongly about the original source material, maybe this wouldn't seem as stark, but like the, the quirkiness of the original was so rooted in its context like yes. specifically medieval quirkiness, you know, that she would say mm-hmm. these specifically medieval things and like do these things and like the juxtaposition of like the weird ways that the saints died and like her thoughts about it. And the quirkiness in the movie was not rooted in any kind of recognizable Middle Ages most of the time. Right. And so I mean, it was and- just kind of random and like floating there. I mean, and that's also the thing, right, is that, I mean, so on the one hand, you know, it's very clear. I don't think Lena Dunham cares about the Middle Ages, which maybe means you shouldn't adapt medieval material. But also, I guess, whatever, it's not your job to care about the Middle Ages, Lena Dunham. But it's also like I it's actually I feel like that's in part not dissimilar to what I didn't like about girls is that what I, one of the, there, well, there were a lot of things I didn't like about girls, but one of the things that I didn't like about girls is that it's like very quirky and it's these like roommates or whatever in New York and nothing about the way that it was quirky. Like it was like quirky in a specifically like even like, you know, 2000s like Brooklyn way, which like, I'm like, you should be familiar with that at least. Like you should at least know what the hell you're talking about there. Yeah. And it still didn't feel like it, like, was set in a real place, weirdly. Like, it didn't seem like, like, it didn't read, like, New York to me. Yeah. Um, And she knows things about New York in the 21st century. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's like the quirk for its own sake rather than, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it just feels like it's just like, I don't know, all of this is set in this like Lena Dunham fantasy world, which has nothing to do with the real universe, either present or past. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I think we can do the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film or other piece of media inspired by this one that we might want to see in the world, uh, perhaps in this particular case instead, which could be another adaptation, like another way of adapting the source material or something completely different. So I'm actually, I was thinking about this, and I think as much as I love like, as I think that Lena Dunham made particular and egregious errors on this, I think it is also the case that this is a really hard thing to adapt. Yeah. And that I think it's much harder. It's much harder to make a good movie about the Middle Ages than a good book about the Middle Ages, because I think like visually it's hard to show a good picture without alienating the audience. And like, it's just like, I like, I'm not sure that a movie could be made of this book that mm-hmm. I would be 100% happy with. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to propose instead a film adaptation of a different nonfiction book, um, mm-hmm. Judith Bennett's A Medieval Life, mm. which is an excellent book, which is um, you know aimed at undergraduates. It's what can be known about a woman who actually does remain single her whole life. Um mm-hmm. in, a roughly similar part of England to Catherine called Birdie about 50 years later. And she is a well-off peasant in a village. Um, and this mm-hmm. whole book is about sort of what can be known about her and about peasant life using her as an example. Um, and so I would like to see a movie that is not necessarily trying to adapt this specific source material, but is just like medieval village life. Hmm. Um, without some kind of like strong female character TM in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, not a, not Catherine Caldberry, not Catherine Caldberry specifically uh-huh. as the small, strong female character. Yeah. So I had actually two different thoughts. So one, inspired by the uh, particular timing of and setting of this narrative, is that, well, I mean, I complain all the time about the stories that people choose to tell and the fact that like they are, well, too many of them are in England in favor of this. Too many of them are about men, but also they are almost invariably about relatively well-off Christians. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it would be interesting to have something of a kind of like, I don't think one could do it as comedically, but a like coming of age narrative about a like Jewish girl in her teens who is experiencing the expulsion. And I think if that's actually the central character, like, I think you could find a way of like being like, I mean, in the same way that I think the book kind of makes ultimately interesting moves of being like, I don't get to choose things and sometimes things suck, but also I will figure things out that I think you actually could to some extent do that if you actually centered that perspective as opposed to like having it be a weird like here is an like here is an other that I'm engaging with. I think if you actually kind of centered that perspective, you could have kind of interesting ways of thinking about like how would this be kind of part of your coming of age experience that you have to under these weird circumstances make this like major change in your life and in like your home and 
and kind of find ways to be like, how, how do you handle that as part of your lived experience? Like with thinking about the fact that, you know, the rare times also where we do get depictions of Jews, they also tend to be just like, wow, our lives are miserable constantly. And so something of a like, if your life isn't miserable constantly, like obviously like being expelled is bad, but that also doesn't mean that necessary and like is hard and terrible, but that also doesn't mean that you like can't have some amount of like resiliency in terms of like figuring out like, okay, and I'm in this new place. And like, there are things that are interesting to us. Yeah. That like, you don't cease to have hopes and dreams for your life just because like, you don't just because like something traumatic happens to you. Yeah. And also like, you know, just because of, you know, structural racism, essentially, that like, that doesn't, like, you can acknowledge that that exists without saying that that's the only thing that defines your life. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know what the like sources are for the expulsion in 1290. I feel like the, what I've, what I've read are more about the expulsions, either from France into Spain or from Spain, like a little bit later on. I, I would have trouble seeing that as anything but like a real bummer of a movie, but I would I would be curious to see how it could not be one. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I guess it is to some extent that like when you're kind of teaching these things, right? It's like, and, and you know, and when you're kind of coming across, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, okay, like every now and then I just have these like moments, right? So I was in Palermo this summer doing some research and came across, because, you know, it was part of the crown of Aragon. Like, so it was so like Jews were also expelled in 1492. and. I just found really interesting. Okay. So this is like arguably not a happy story, but like, I was like really entertained by it that like, there's this, this Jewish couple, like neither of them are converting, but just like it's 1492 and they're getting divorced. And it's like, after the expulsion decree has been announced and all that. And it's just like, I'm just like, I'm just reading it. I'm like, yeah, I guess they're just like, I don't want to be like, be kicked out still married to this person. And it's like, okay, like, this is a horrible, traumatic thing. And even with that, like, does that necessarily mean that that's the only thing going on in your life? Like, not necessarily. That's amazing. I mean, it's not amazing. I'm sure it was a really rough year for them. I mean, but maybe, but who knows? Maybe, like, you don't know. Maybe they were really thrilled about this divorce, honestly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, maybe they were like, I mean, the expulsion is bad, but, like, this divorce is, like, really for the best. Yeah, the thing that, like, finally made them take that step that they knew they should have taken years ago. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, like, we obviously get, right, in terms of our sources, we get a lot of laments. But then we also, especially when you're kind of looking at things from, like, a documentary perspective, it's like, okay, we also get the, like, documents that are created in the context of somebody, like, being in another place and some number, you know, a few years after the expulsion, and they've, like, kind of figured out a new life. Yeah, like, there's that... um in Jonathan Ray's book, After Expulsion, he mm-hmm. has like, a whole chapter on that guy who was like a kid when he got expelled and he like wandered all over the Mediterranean world and he like converted to Christianity and then he converted back and then he converted to Christianity again and like mm-hmm. just kind of like kept reinventing himself in like different places mm-hmm. and like was like maybe not happy about that, but like. But there is a way in which you were, if you were writing a novel, that could be like a weird, like picaresque novel that is like not a bummer. Yeah. Like I would watch the movie of that guy. Yeah. So so like, that's the kind of thing that I'm, so like maybe not quite that like level of like 
weird stuff going on, I guess, Hmm. but like something along that, right. Of like the, the kind of like resiliency of like, this is an experience that like sucked, but that's not the only thing that is like defining in my life. And that also like, I have this like resiliency and can like figure out a new, like what things look like in this like new space, which is like in the grand scheme of like being Jewish and Christian Europe, not that bad. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess like in a, you know, in a world where people mostly didn't move around that much and felt themselves to some extent defined by like where they were from, mm-hmm. you, how do you figure out who you are when you're now yeah. like, going to a new place is like actually a more interesting question in some ways than. Yeah. 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 Okay. I would watch it. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. So that's my, my weird move of a movie about an expulsion that isn't a bummer. Uh, yeah I would trust Lena Dunham to make that movie even less though oh yeah yeah no she is uh she is nowhere near this one Um, yeah she could beg to make that movie and you would be like no nope I'd be like I will I will sell the right if I'm like gonna write this book it's like I will sell the rights to literally anybody well no that's not I was gonna say literally anybody except Lena Dunham and then I remember that Ridley Scott exists yeah hmm this yeah. is the podcast on which I like nothing. Um, it's just, if they made better things, there'd be more things to like. Right, right. You know, I weirdly liked Castlevania. I have not but seen that. But that's part, that's part because I could be like, yeah, fuck it, there are vampires and I'm really tired. Yeah, I mean, I think it's better when they don't try to be accurate. Yeah. And just like are doing something and it's good. I mean, and that's actually why I had hopes for this movie actually is to some extent the fact that I was like, okay, it's going to be wrong, but it's also not going to try. And so maybe that'll end up with something that at least is fun. Like, like I genuinely actually, I like A Knight's Tale a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Tale, I feel like is probably the number one polling fi- medieval film. Yeah. Like more it's, medieval it's like, it's like, than like any other movie. It's like either that or uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which is also yeah. unexpectedly good. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, but both of them are like, I think it's telling, right? Both of them are things that like, don't, they don't take themselves too seriously either overall, because like, in my opinion, none of the like gritty, you know, aggressively gray medieval movies, I don't think any of them are good. But it's also like they don't take themselves too seriously on that front, but also that they like have a lot of like things that are deliberate anachronisms and which I think like makes it easier for me to like calm down and enjoy the movie if it's a good movie. And so I think like if the if this had been just like a thing with deliberate anachronisms, if it had been good, I think I would have been fine with that. Yeah, I mean, I think they also what those movies have in common is that they have legitimately clever takes yes and i think the way like it's a very medieval way of thinking that like you can only really approach the reality of the past through metaphor like you can't do it in like a strictly speaking like one-to-one kind of documentary accuracy sort of way Mm -hmm. and i think you know like those sort of just like at different moments like get at something about the middle ages that is like quite funny and true but like not by actually like perfectly recreating it just by like joking about it and i think 
yeah. the problem with this movie isn't that it wasn't accurate. It's that it didn't have anything to say about the Middle Ages or really. Anything. I'm not sure it had anything to say at all, honestly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, so I guess that leads into the uh, the estimatio section <laughs> where we rate the film on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria we see fit. This is going to be a huge surprise. <laughs> we were not that much into this movie. Yep. So uh, where where are you landing on your rating? So, okay. Like, intellectually, I think it should probably be a three because it's, like, not that bad, I guess. <laughs> I'm mad about it, so I think, I think it's a two. Like, it's not the worst that could possibly exist, but, like, it was worse than it needed to be. I'm also landing on a two. And honestly, to some extent, I feel like it's getting slightly higher. And like, I feel like it could have even been lower than a two, honestly, in terms of my level of annoyance and that it's getting slightly like it's in part just getting points because I have some level of appreciation, both because of doing this podcast and because of teaching this like medieval the movies course of like, being relieved when somebody makes a movie about the middle ages that isn't men with swords in front of a gray background. Mm -hmm. And so this movie, I feel like is basically getting like half a point for how much I liked it and up and like a point and a half for not being gray sword movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think they took good, they took source, good source material and made it worse, but yes. The source material, while good, I think was difficult. Like, I think yes. it would have been really hard. And I think harder than most movie source materials, it is hard, to, it would be hard to make this movie both as accurate and as funny as it is in the book. And I also think it is one of those things where, I, I mean, I think it would have been difficult to adapt no matter what. I do kind of wonder if it would have been the kind of thing that would have been like better as like a six episode miniseries. I could see that. I think they could have really leaned into the diary aspect of it a little bit. Yeah. Actually, though, like, I think that's true of almost any movie that, like, well, yes, based on a book. Like, any book is better adapted as a six-episode miniseries. That's true. Because, like, the arc of it just usually doesn't work. Right. With the one exception of The uh, of the Hobbit, which should have been one movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've actually never seen those. I refused I watched them recently for a podcast that I was guesting on. Yeah. I did not enjoy the experience. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I've seen the first season of The Silmarillion, what, Rings of Power, which is mm -hmm. they're somehow going to make five seasons out of that material. I mean, uh, by, by moving intensely slowly, as I assume how they'll be doing that. Oh, my God, so slowly. <laughs> Eplin Galadriel is swimming across the sea for no reason, in which case it happens so fast. Um, <laughs> I mean, did you watch her swimming for a while? Yeah. And like, I guess Longer she than you need get to all the way away. across the sea. She just gets from like what it's called the like. The Undying like, Lands or like. Yeah, to, to Numenor. Which to is Numenor, yeah. Yeah. It's still, anyway, um, that's a whole other, yeah. that's a whole other episode. Anyway. yeah um so yeah two yeah so we're we're settled it's worse than i wanted it but uh -huh. could be worse than it is 
the ringing endorsement of could be worse. <laughs> yeah. And continuing in the strong vein of on this podcast, nobody likes anything. Have you actually, like, there are things that you've actually liked, right? No, there are things that I've liked. There aren't many of them, but there are things that I've liked. Yeah, it can be done, people. People, I, I have liked things. So, Abby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you are very welcome. It was my pleasure. I am so glad to have been able to discuss this because I had so many thoughts. And <laughs> my husband just my monologuing about this movie, which I've been doing for the last week. Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they wanted to hear more of your thoughts? Not, I mean, not a lot, honestly. I mean, I guess on the GW website, I am there. I have a Twitter account that I use even less than I used in the times when Twitter was sort of not on the brink. Um, (laughs) And that's, that's about it. I'm, you know, yeah. Yeah. Brief appearances on your podcast. pretty much. Yes. So. Please, please check out Abby's previous appearance on the uh, Cadfael episode. Uh, And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter, assuming that Twitter still exists when this episode is released at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Abby, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. I wish I could help every guy in the world. Knowing your own story will be your salvation.